Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Tuesday, January 5th. We begin with a look at the impact the new Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine will have in the fight against COVID-19. We speak with a doctor from England's Southampton University who says this version of the vaccine could be a game changer. Has the pandemic revealed cracks in our public school system here in Canada? We get the thoughts of a professor from the University of Ottawa who believes there are some real lessons to be learned from the crisis. Next, we hear about a unique project from the Veterans Association Food Bank, which aims to give work to local veterans. And finally, is eating healthy one of your New Year's resolutions? We speak with a Calgary-based holistic nutritionist for some tips and suggestions to make the change easier to swallow. 709 on the morning news. Britain has authorized the Oxford AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine, but... What does this mean for the rest of us? We're joined now by Dr. Michael Head, a senior research fellow at the University of Southampton, joins us now with more details. Good morning to you, Dr. Head. Good morning, and thank you for inviting me on. Thank you for joining us. Uh, before we get to the impact that this you know, uh, vaccine may have globally, let's talk about the vaccine itself and what makes it unique from the other front runners we've heard of in the headlines recently between Pfizer and Moderna. What makes the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine unique? So the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines both use the mRNA sort of template uh, to generate the immune response. The Oxford vaccine uses something called an adenovirus vector. The adenovirus is basically a, another respiratory virus that is one of the causes of the common cold. So the Oxford AstraZeneca scientists essentially um, deactivated that, added a coronavirus protein onto it, and that's what gets injected into the human being. And that's what's been shown to generate this quite um, decent immune response. Okay, yeah, I know with uh, some of the other vaccines... It does require two doses, a lot of the other vaccines. And in the case of Pfizer, needs to be stored at incredibly cold temperatures, something between minus 80 and minus 70 Celsius. So uh, what, what about the handling and delivery uh, of the Oxford AstraZeneca? Well, yeah, that's one of the reasons why the Oxford candidate looks to be a better bet. I mean, both for high-income countries like the UK and Canada, but also other parts of the world as well, it requires storage at refrigeration temperatures, which is much, much easier to handle um, as part of existing kind of health systems infrastructure. With the Pfizer candidate, as we've seen, it is being rolled out across the you know, UK and the US, um, but in relatively small numbers. The Oxford candidate should be manufactured in larger doses and be easier to transport around a country rapidly. So I think that's why it could be a particularly um, important vaccine candidate for everyone. The other thing we talk about when it comes to these new vaccines is the effective rate. How does it compare to the other uh, vaccines now available? Sorry, I didn't quite hear the question. What was that, sorry? How effective is the vaccine? If we can put a percentage on it like the Pfizer or Moderna, what's the percentage of efficacy? Uh, uh, oh, effectiveness. I'm yes. gonna, I've had enough, enough coffee this morning. <laughs> That's absolutely fine. Um, yeah, so the, the Pfizer and Moderna ones look to be I mean, really very effective, about 90-odd percent effectiveness, which is brilliant. The Oxford one looks to be a bit less effective overall. So we're looking at probably... 70% from one dose going up to about 80% from two doses is what we think is going to happen. The data is quite complicated with Oxford. There was a lot of subgroups within the analysis. Um, so the uh, dosing schedule that we've got here in the UK, we think should provide 80% protection after two doses. Okay, so around that 80%, uh, you know, when it comes to the effectiveness, how does that compare to, for example, a flu vaccine? So the flu vaccine effectiveness varies from year to year. I mean, as, as people probably know, it gets... Um, 
reformulated every year according to what we think are going to be the likely strains of flu that are spreading around. I think overall you probably could look at about 50% as a rough marker for what you would expect out of a flu vaccine, which is not perfect but useful. Um, so we think that these coronavirus vaccines that we've seen so far um, are going to be much more effective than what we would typically see from a flu vaccine. And then you bring in the herd immunity aspect. It uh, doesn't take every single resident to, you know, have the vaccine to see, you know, some results, does it? No, I mean, clearly we want as many people as possible to take up this vaccine. Ultimately, the pandemic doesn't end if people don't get vaccinated. And we think the herd immunity threshold is going to be roughly about 70% or thereabouts. So I think any population you would want at least, I mean, at least 60%, but probably ideally about 70 to 80% of people as a minimum um, to take up the vaccine. One of the first bonuses of the Oxford AstraZeneca uh, product uh, appears to be the cost. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so the cost of the vaccine is about 2 to $3 per dose. Um, and then the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are sort of multiple times of that, about 20 to $30 per dose. So it's going to be much cheaper. And I think and at the moment, for most countries, kind of money is no object in terms of how they fund the pandemic response. But in years to come, uh, particularly with low and middle income countries, I think the cost of procuring a product might well be a factor in which one they choose. So where is it going to be produced? We know it's an Oxford AstraZeneca, uh, uh, you know, I guess you'd say uh, combination. There's uh, two teams coming together. Is it produced primarily in Britain or are there going to be other production facilities to your knowledge? So the very initial doses in Europe anyway are being made in Netherlands and Germany, but then manufacturing will mostly come from the UK um, in the very near future. Elsewhere, there's a big manufacturing site in India um, with the SSI, which is producing many, many millions of doses of that. I think in terms of the worldwide production, that might be the key site going forward in India. So do we have any idea on how much it can be produced, I, I guess, in the, in the coming months or over the next year? Well, certainly the, um, the vaccine manufacturers are claiming that they'll be able to produce you know, a billion or more doses over the, the coming months. So the scale of manufacturing of this particular vaccine is big. Um, and certainly we will need that many doses. We'll need more than that, in fact. Um, we have 8 billion people in the world. We want to give everyone two doses. So we do need about 16 billion doses um, over the next kind of year or two. The three major players, the Pfizer, the Moderna, and now the Oxford, AstraZeneca. Uh, I understand there are many more coming down the pipe. Uh, there are many other players in the game that could, could see some success over the coming days or weeks, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, there's the Russia and China vaccines, um, which are sort of being used already. China has vaccinated many millions of its own population. Um, and I'm sure that they will be offered abroad at some point as well um, into parts of sub-Saharan Africa or Southeast Asia or South America. And then there are the other sort of Western-developed vaccines as well. So I'm part of one of the vaccine trials here in the UK for the Novavax platform, which is in phase three trials and is looking promising. There's the Janssen uh, vaccine as well, which, again, is also phase three and looks promising. So I think the fact we have so many vaccine candidates, some of them already here and others looking promising, that it does bode well, certainly for the medium and long term future for the UK and the rest of the world. Certainly a point of optimism for sure. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Head. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. That is Dr. Michael Head, Senior Research Fellow in Global Health at Southampton University in England. And uh, just to recap, I believe Brenda Neufeld has brought you some of these numbers, our uh, COVID update here in the province. It sounds a little staggering when you say that we have reported just over 5,100 COVID-19 cases and 96 deaths since December 30th. Uh, but you put the numbers together and that's over a five-day period. 
We had just over 1,200 cases on December 30th, 1,361 December 31st. A little lower, but this is due to less testing. January 1st, 933 new cases, 459 on January 2nd. And the latest update yesterday, and again, uh, Dr. Hinshaw has been putting these out on her Twitter account, available online, 1,128 cases. Uh, that was on Sunday. So we're waiting for today's numbers, which will be announced this afternoon. And today... Uh, marks the return of the live updates from Dr. Dina Hinshaw. So uh, brings our total number of tests, uh, by the way, to 2,847,016. And there are currently 13,839 active cases uh, across the province. So uh, certainly we've seen a bit of a downward trend. However, the testing has been down somewhat, starting to increase as we move further away from the holidays Dr. Hinshaw will be again having her first live report in days uh, a little later this afternoon. 6.43 on the morning news. Throughout lockdowns, class cancellations and learning from home, the pandemic has caused quite the stir for Canada's public school system. But has it also revealed cracks that need to be fixed? Jennifer Walner is a professor with the School of Political Studies at the University of Ottawa and joins us now with her thoughts. Good morning to you, Jennifer. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being here. It has been a tough time for students, and I would think educators alike. But what's the biggest takeaway? Does this show some faults within our system? Uh, Well, it certainly is showing the ways in which we don't actually cooperate very well with each other and the ways in which there seems to be a disconnect between decision makers and deliverers, especially in certain provinces. Um, And these are issues that definitely need to be addressed. Added to which, there really is definitely a growing inequality in education um, between those who have access to resources and who have parents with stable jobs and employment and those who don't. Okay, let's break down this when you you say, you know, a a breakdown of communication, uh, the different levels here. Decision makers, does that include just the politicians or ministries of education or does it also include the school boards themselves? Uh, I think in this case right now, it's really there's a big disconnect between the politicians and, and the bureaucrats in ministries of education and uh, and then everybody else on the school board. So, for instance, here in Ontario, we're currently living through this uh, very rapidly announced shift to one week of online learning. And who knows if it will only be one week. And the way that they implemented it was uh, quite ridiculous. That's the only word for it. Um, and if you, the teachers themselves had no time to get ready to do this. I'm, for instance, sitting here with my son downstairs, and he's in a grade one, grade two, grade three split class with a teacher who doesn't know how to use uh, Google Meets because she's an older teacher. It's not her fault. Mm-hmm. Uh, and trying to make this all work. And, you know, that the fact that they waited until December 17th to make this announcement uh, is a bit ridiculous. Okay, Jennifer, but let's let's play devil's advocate in here here and say that you know uh, we've never been through something like this before. So, are there are going to be uh, some bumps? Sure, there's going to be some bumps. So, for instance, like the original lockdown back in March, I can completely sympathize and understand why it happened in in the ways that it did. And for the most part, in fact, actually, lots of ministries of education across the country did their very best um, to try and make things as reasonable as possible. 
But again, you see the difference between certain provinces and, and the way that they've interacted uh, with their school boards. So, for instance, in Nova Scotia and Atlantic Canada, they benefited from creating the Atlantic bubble. It was easier for them to reopen schools. They had a better dedicated communication system between the ministries and the school boards. And this is not a partisan issue because, in fact, a number of those provinces are governed by conservative parties and, and others are governed by liberal governments. So that's not the issue. But in, uh, you know, not to put, point two fingers, though, but Alberta and Ontario, really, they're, they're the ways in which the decision makers have been acting has not been really easy for teachers and school boards and direct deliverers to navigate. That's all. Okay, so you you know uh, you have an article on theconversation.com that breaks this down. Ultimately, what would you like to see? Uh, you know, the result of the article, if, if you get the right eyes on it, what are the changes you'd like to see? Uh, well, certainly, reinstituting, reinstitu- recreating better communications between the school boards and the ministries, so that there's ongoing, regular. Uh, work being done and so that there's not a huge disconnect between the two. That's mm-hmm. the first thing. Second thing, they really need to reinvigorate the communications across the provinces to better learn from each other and follow each other's leads in terms of what's working in online learning and what's not. Because the notion that we're going to be back in regular, full-time, fully loaded schooling, even by September, I think, from the look of what's happening in terms of the patterns of the pandemic, seems quite unlikely. Uh, and in fact, actually, there's probably some great lessons that we could be learning from the flexibility of online learning when it's done properly uh, that could be used moving forward to better uh, adapt to the needs of students and parents across the country. Professor, thanks for your time this morning. Thanks so much. Have a good day. You too. That is Professor Jennifer Walner, School of Political Studies at the University of Ottawa. 8.43 on the morning news. A new Calgary thrift store is helping support military veterans start a new life in the city. With some details, we're joined by veteran Charles Redeker. Good morning to you, Charles. Good morning. Well, let's talk about this. I mean, I, I, we know about, for example, the Veterans Association Food Bank, and uh, we know what a thrift store does and the function of a thrift store. How did these two come together? Um, so these two, the, the idea for this um, started a little over a year ago um, as a way to get some of the veterans that were struggling to find jobs um, back into employment. Um, and through the Veterans Association Food Bank, um, it, it kind of just made sense that with, with helping veterans with food, with emergency financials, that creating a unit that that would get them back to work just made sense and fell in line with the programming. And uh, we were fortunate enough that uh, we were able to, to get a space and without a lot of hype, um, have a tremendous amount of donations come in from the community for the thrift store. And, uh, of course, we opened the doors to the thrift store yesterday. So do veterans have a chance to work within the store, or is it just a case of the funds will go to help and benefit those veterans in our city? It is going to be both. So the thrift store will employ uh, three to four veterans um, to to start with, and then it's also going to be a, a resource um, for veterans in the city. So the store is open to the public. Um, but a veteran in need will be able to access um, items in the thrift store at no charge um, through some of our other 
um, emergency veteran assistance cost programming. Um, so if a veteran is um, reestablishing a home that they've been, you know, they've been homeless, they, they've got a roof back over their head again, um, they'll be able to come into the thrift store to furnish their new, you know, their new home um, on the street and need clothing. Um, that's all going to be accessible to them. And then proceeds from the sales in the thrift store will go back into the Veterans Association's um, other programming for veterans, whether it's the Food Hamper Program or the Emergency um, Veterans Assistance Cost Program or our Pet Promise Program. Charles, you tell me personally what this means to you as a veteran uh, as far as something as interactive uh, that lends a hand in the community versus, you know, for example, just the Poppy Fund or the Veterans Food Bank. But the fact that it's so interactive and intangible and, and hands-on, uh, why is that important? Um, the, particularly for the veterans that are going to be to be working in and running the store, it, it gives them a sense of purpose again. Um, you know, to, to give them a hand up, help them out with food, help them out with, with bills is one thing. Um, but to give a veteran a purpose and a mission again, um, goes much further to helping that, that veteran reestablish their identity, um, and, and get back off on the right foot again. Now let's talk about being a veteran in the city of Calgary and the resources available. How do, how do you think we stack up uh, across the nation to other cities as, as far as those resources and uh, available uh, to, to help veterans in a city the size of Calgary? You know, um, I, I think with, uh, with having the Veterans Association uh, food bank here and, and now the thrift store, um, we're actually in a lot better position um, for veterans that are looking for help than a lot of other cities in the country. Um, so I, I work here at the association and, and at least once a week, um, I get a, I'll, I'll get phone calls from other parts of the country, um, looking for help because they, they can't find it where they are. Um, so for, for Calgary to have the Veterans Association Food Bank, the Veterans Association store here as a resource for veterans is, uh, Calgary is very fortunate. Good stuff, and thank you for telling us all about it, Charles. We appreciate it. You are very welcome. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. That is a veteran, Charles Redeker, and the Veterans Association Thrift Store is now open. You can find them. They're located at 640 28th Street Northeast. 910 on the morning news. Eating healthy can be a challenge, but it doesn't have to be. Amber Romanyuk is a certified holistic nutritional consultant here in the city, and she joins us now with some simple tips on how to adopt healthier eating habits in the new year. Good morning to you, Amber. Good morning. Well, this could be on many people's New Year's resolutions uh, list to uh, you know, turn over a new healthier leaf when it comes to eating. Uh, but like anything, change is hard. So, Amber, where do we start if we decide we want to take a healthier path when it comes to our food choices? Yeah, I think the first step is to not set too big of goals and expectations for yourself because I find that can set people up for failure. So I would encourage you to start with one small goal and pick away at it. So example could be maybe you want to work on hydration because you're not getting your two liters of water a day. Maybe you're noticing you're not eating any fruits or vegetables through the day and you want to start 
slowly increasing your uptake by adding a serving to each meal. Or maybe it's that you're having good intent to eat well, but you run out of time to make good food in the evening. So maybe you want to start with some Sunday food prep and dedicate 30 to 60 minutes to start to make, you know, some good items to take to work with you or to eat at home just so you have good food available. So are you saying that if if something like moving toward more of a vegetarian or vegan lifestyle, I shouldn't just circle the calendar and say, okay, I'm going to begin full stop on Wednesday. That's not the way to go. Yeah, regardless of, you know, what you're wanting to add into your eating, whether it's more fat, more protein, more mm-hmm. vegetables, um, I think it's so important that you start to go, okay, I'm going to just start to integrate this slowly and see how I do. Because I often find if you're saying, okay, like diet starts Monday or I'm going to, you know, eat clean only starting Monday, you're really setting yourself up for an all or nothing mentality and this kind of perfectionist mentality. So if you have a bad day, if you get stressed out, if you have a, you know, maybe you forget to eat lunch and then you get too hungry and then you're searching through the cupboard for, you know, the snacks and the refined foods and you eat something that you weren't planning to, that can really feel very devastating. And then that can, you know, push people into a mentality of, well, I've already messed up today, so I'm Mm -hmm. just going to keep eating, you know, the junk food until I start again on Monday. And so that can fuel that mentality um, and also things like emotional eating. So I find just slow, taking your time and, and focusing on one small goal. So maybe you're skipping lunch. So maybe your goal is you want to start dedicating 20 to 30 minutes to stop your work and eat lunch without distraction and, and mm-hmm. sit down and eat your meal. Even that could be a great goal to work toward because and the other thing I find for people is they eat while they work or eat and watch TV, and then they're not satiated and satisfied, and that can set them up for overeating and, and excess snacking, which can also contribute to you know weight gain or more cravings or bloating. Amber, you can add the uh, challenge of if, if you have a family, for example, or even if you just have a partner in your life, you kind of have to be on the same page or else it's, it's an added workload, isn't it? It can be, but the great thing is I found with most of the people I work with, once they start wanting to make healthier choices, it inspires the family, it inspires the partner, um, and getting them involved with a little bit of help in the kitchen, trying some new recipes, trying some new ingredients, it's a great way to kind of pique their interest. I know when we, you know, when I make something, bake something or make something and, you know, people try it, they're often shocked that there's, you know, no refined sugar or that it's got a whole serving of vegetables in it, even if it's a baked good, right? So I think it's just being willing to experiment with some new ingredients and seeing if your partner or your family is open to trying new things because you never know. They could absolutely love it and it could be easy to get them on board. And of course, if they're not and, you know, you're really focusing on it for yourself, you know, you can prepare these healthier items and, you know, they can always integrate the other additional ingredients that they want, you know, on the side, right? So it's not that they have to feel restricted, but I do find, you know, it's very important if this is important for you and your health and well-being um, to, you know, really focus on it and dedicate time toward it, um, sitting and eating mindfully, you know, enjoying your food, chewing properly to aid in good digestion is also really important because I find a lot of people are just rushing through eating and then again, they're bloated and they don't feel well afterwards. So I think it's the key is to start to build this mindful practice with food um, and, and dedicating time to prepare some food. Um, and, and like I said, starting with a small goal, whether it's something to do with nutrition or hydration or even sleep hygiene and getting more sleep, all of this plays a role in cravings and appetite levels, um, you know, and, and maybe the foods that you're feeling drawn toward, whether it's healthier items or more refined items. You know, Amber, it's, it's a very interesting times for us in that eating healthy has now, it's switched into the prepackaged and takeout fast foods are now a much cheaper option 
than eating healthy. So I'm wondering how we can save a few dollars at the grocery store, perhaps, if we want to eat healthy, eat more fresh fruits, if you will. Uh, For example, do we need to buy organic? No, not necessarily. So I would say if you're going to buy one food organic, if you can, it would be apples because they are the most heavily sprayed. Um, Otherwise, though, I think the key is um, you're better off to, uh, you know, go and shop and buy your fruits and vegetables and wash them really well or get a good fruit and vegetable wash for things like that. Um, I find the other thing, too, that adds up is you may notice, well, fast food is cheaper, but how often are you going through the drive-thru and spending that money and what food are you, you know, not taking the time to prep in the fridge that's then getting thrown in the garbage. So you may find by dedicating a little bit more time to prepare the, you know, food that you're buying at the store that you're going to save money because you're not going to be throwing as much out and because you have that good food available, you likely won't find yourself going through the drive-thru as much. So you may end up actually saving money by taking this little bit more time to prepare. Also, I find Yes, fast food can be cheaper, but in the long run, it can cost you more with your health. So I find if we can, you know, start with these small goals and start working a little bit more toward mindful eating and even just bringing a little bit more into the your house that is fresh and or that is, you know, as close to nature as possible, it's just about those small changes. So, you know, even if it's just, you know, 15 20 $30, you know, that you're budgeting to spend on more fresh food, that can make a big difference um, and or maybe you're, you know, going and getting your meat or your eggs from a local butcher mm-hmm. or, a, you know, a farmer and, and you're finding that just that quality of that food is very integral and, it, you know, it's just very potent in nutrients. And so I find, you know, when we take that kind of approach, most people find that they're saving money because they're not eating it out as much and they're not throwing food in the garbage. Well, and just before I let you go, I, I'm glad you mentioned you said meat and eggs. In that last response there, I think meat has been beaten up over the past uh, couple of years. Meat isn't the bad guy, is it? I don't think it is. I think, you know, I respect everyone's beliefs if, if they don't want to eat meat because of, you know, certain reasons based off of their love of animals. But, you know what, we live in Alberta and the farmers here produce high quality meat, high quality eggs, you know, we're close enough to the coast that you can, they bring in a lot of great fish and seafood from, you know, the West Coast. So I think it's a matter of, you know, sourcing maybe from a farmer's market, or I know a lot of farmers right now, you can order right from them and they'll ship it to you and you can split it with family and friends. Um, So I think there's a lot of great ways to access good local quality, whether it's grass-fed or whether it's just even free range, you avoid all those antibiotics and hormones that we don't need. Um, If that's not something you can do, that's okay. I do think, like I said, being that we live in Alberta, we're very lucky that we have so many great farmers producing that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Some great tips. We appreciate your time this morning, Amber. Thank you. That is Amber Romaniuk, a certified holistic nutritional consultant here in Calgary.